Hello, everybody, and welcome to a brand new episode of Physics of the Mystics, this incredible podcast that blends physics, science. I'm going to get to eventually quantum physics and the age-old wisdom of our sages, of Kabbalists, of mysticism. Through the recent discoveries of science, we are going to better appreciate the deep knowledge that the Torah already shared with us thousands of years ago. Today I'm going to go deep into the subject we are going to discuss, and I hope you'll be able to hold on and uh, come along with me on the subject of light and how the way we understand light helps us appreciate the timelessness of God. God was, God is, God will be, is one of those characteristics of God. God knows the future as in the present tense, as he knows and lives with the past, something that is difficult for us to uh, wrap our minds around because we don't live in that kind of a world. But that's what we're going to talk about. And before I get into today's subject, I want to remind everybody that if you send me your emails to physicsofthemystics at gmail.com. In another week or so, Hanukkah is coming, and we're going to have a raffle for a $260 free raffle, free gift card from Amazon. Some lucky winner, some lucky listener to this podcast, Physics of the Mystics, is going to be able to splurge on the holiday of Hanukkah just by sending in your email address to physicsofthemystics at gmail.com. My name is Rabbi Shlomo Ezagwi. I've authored um, a number of books already, one on Maimonides, Maimonides' advice for the 21st century. Went through all 14 volumes of the Rambam, Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon, Maimonides' magnum opus. And I extracted all those rules that relate to morals and values all from the great wisdom of Rabbi Moshe Maimon, the personal physician of the Sultan, a great philosopher and a great, more than anything else, a great rabbi representative of God's wisdom, the wisdom of the Torah. I also authored another book, a spiritual soul book, over 800 pages, 300 chapters. And it's all about um, the mind, about the heart. It's all about spirituality, all about the soul, all about mission and purpose, all about joy, happiness, depression. And you can find it all in that book, A Spiritual Soul Book. I upload two chapters of my book on the blogs uh, that you can find um, at the Times of Israel website. The Times of Israel is a new site um, with the news from Israel, and they have a blog page, and you can find Two chapters of my incredible book uploaded every single week. There's a whole bunch of them there right now. And you can enjoy and appreciate and greatly um, expand your mind um, and your appreciation for spirituality and for the Jewish tradition by reading um, the uh, chapters that I've uploaded already so far on the Times of Israel blog page. And now I'm working on another book, Physics of the Mystics. And while I do that, I'm sharing this incredible knowledge with you very lucky listeners on this podcast, Physics of the Mystics. Up until this point, we've already discussed so many very important ideas. We discussed how the structure of an atom represents the balance and the structure 
of a Jewish home where there's a male and a female and then there is the inclusion of God and that's the balance of a healthy home and of a healthy Adam. We talked about the expression of God's very special name, which is one, but expressed in four letters. We see that in the sun, the way the sun physically operates to create its heat and its light. It's exactly that same idea where hydrogen, the first element on the table of elements, it fuses four atoms together and that creates the sun and that creates the heat. We talked about the theoretical physicists that make a mistake thinking that there can't be or there isn't a outside force that is the influence and takes the credit for the incredible precision of this universe. And so um, I hope you will uh, you will uh, re- make reference uh, to those uh, podcasts and be able to uh, deepen and strengthen um, your appreciation again for our Jewish tradition and for our faith and our trust in God and his incredible blueprint for this world, for this universe, and that's the Torah. The practices of the Torah, the wisdom of the Torah are all being now more recently recognized by the uh, discoveries of modern-day scientists. Today, I want to talk about light and how the characteristics of light help us appreciate the incredible um, uh, uh, description that the Torah gives for God. The way the Torah describes God, we find, for example, in the book of Psalms, God is my light and my salvation. So we are describing God as light, We find it also in many different places in the book of Psalms. Many say, who will show us goodness? Raise up over us the light of your countenance, O Lord. And so again, we are describing God's identity as being that of light. For with you is the source of life. In your light, we will see light. So in Hasidic Discourses, it explains the reason why the light of God on a spiritual level is called Or Ein Soif. There are many ways to understand Or Ein Soif. Hasidus itself discusses the many different ways to understand it. There's one way to understand that it's a light, an Or, which emanates from the Ein Soif, from the infinite essence of God himself. Then there's another way to describe the Or Ein Soif, that the Or itself is Ein Soif, is infinite. It's endless. It has qualities of infinity in it. And that's because the light is an aspect of its source. I'm not going to make this into a Hasidic class, but that's the way it's described in Hasidic discourses. Since light is an aspect of its source, God's essence, and since the source luminary from which the light radiates, God is truly infinite in every way. So the light, the or that emanates from God, there it's talking more on a spiritual level, but that's the undertone, and that's the energy that expresses itself later on in the physical um, in the physical light that, uh, that we appreciate, that we see on a physical level. So it also it manifests itself and expresses itself with those same characteristics. So let me get into now the physics and the scientific side of what light is, and you are going to um, have to hold on with me for those 
that are not familiar with these subjects of Einstein's theory of special relativity and of general relativity, but we're going to delve deep into that subject today. Now, before we talk about light, let's talk a teeny little bit about time, which I intend in my book, Physics of the Mystics, to reveal some incredible insights into the definition of time, which is an age-old question for philosophers and scientists. Is it imaginary? Is it an actuality? But just let's talk a little bit about time. And let me mention to you that according to science and according to um, the way we uh, experience time, time is not exactly what you think it is. And the reason for that is because if speed, if, if light, um, if the speed of light is an absolute constant, as Einstein taught us in this very special theory of special relativity. So if the speed of light is an absolute constant, it always travels at that speed for everybody, no matter how fast or how slow you're going, then it has to be that time and space and matter, they all have to adjust themselves and they become relative according to this incredible theory of Einstein. I'm going to explain this to you in just a moment. The speed of light is not only absolute, but it also calibrates everything important in the universe, including time, because it remains a constant. Everything else, so to say, has to serve and bend itself to fit in to the constant speed of light. You know, we usually consider time to be an absolute. And we have that impression that time moves at the same rate for everyone because our experience when looking at a, at a clock is that it ticks the same for everybody. And that time is governed. You, you know, it's like a, an invisible universal clock that is the same for everybody. But that's not the case. That's not the case according to science. And that's not the case even according to the Torah. And that we're going to have to leave for another discussion, how it's possible that time, even in the same place, but in different experiences, can be at a different level for different people, even at the same place, because it's experienced differently. Let me demonstrate this concept with a simple thought experiment. Um, involving a laser beam that's reflected from a train mirror. Now, the light beam travels from the laser to the mirror and is reflected back down again and returns to the laser. So to an observer sitting on the train, the light beam moves straight up and down in a vertical line. Pretty straightforward uh, uh, trajectory. From the reference frame of a person standing on the ground, however, and he's watching the train go by and he sees the laser shoot its way up to the mirror on the ceiling of the train and then come back down to the ground. For him on the ground, the light appears to be going on a path that is zigzagging because he sees the train go in front of him and away. So the light appears to be moving at an angle and coming back down at an angle, and the subtotal of the whole 
a movement is that the light traveled further distance according to the judgment of the guy standing on the ground versus the guy that is watching all this in the train itself. If the person on the train wants to measure the speed of light, so they will measure the distance that the light travels along that vertical line between the laser and the top mirror, as well as the distance that the light travels from the mirror back to the laser. And the total distance will then be divided by the time that it took for the light to bounce back and forth. And then that's how you figure the speed. This is due to the fact that the speed of anything is always defined as the distance that something travels in a given amount of time. You divide the, the distance by the time and you get the speed. If the person on the ground attempts to measure the speed of light, they will measure the distance traveled by the light along the zigzag path. And since it's a longer path, they will divide it by the time that it takes for the light beam to travel up and then back down again to the laser. But because the zigzag pattern is a longer distance than the vertical line that the guy on the train is looking at, so the person on the ground, he's going to calculate the speed of the light to be greater than the speed measured by someone on the train. A greater distance that is divided by the same amount of time will result in a greater speed, right? Pretty simple, but we have a problem if that's the case because based on what we said that the speed of light is always the same for everybody, how can the speed of light be faster because it has to cover more ground for the guy that's standing on the ground in the same amount of time but we know, according to the theory of Einstein, that the speed of light is always the same for everybody, no matter what perspective you have looking at light, it's always going to be the same speed. And this contradicts the principle that the speed of light is always constant for all observers. How can both observers measure the speed of light at different rates when the speed of light is absolute and independent of the observer's reference frame. So let me give you the answer that Einstein came up with and how that's going to help us appreciate the um, speed of light, which is constant, and the characteristic of the infinite light of God that emanates from the essence of God. When the person on the train and the person on the ground compares notes, they will notice that the person on the ground measured the speed of light at a higher rate. And we appear to be dealing over here with a major conundrum when understanding that, and it's been tested and proven to be the case, that the speed of light is always the same. And Einstein realized that in order for both observers to measure the same speed of light, the time measurement has to change proportionally to the length change. Something has to give. In order to make the puzzle fit, something has to give. Because speed is defined as the distance divided by time, so a longer distance divided by a longer time, if time would expand 
produces the same result as a shorter distance divided by a shorter time. Because remember, we need to come to the conclusion that the speed of light is the same both for the guy in the train and both for the guy standing on the ground. The problem is the guy in the ground sees the light traveling a greater distance. So we're going to have to adjust the time factor in order to keep the, the, the speed of the light to be the same. If each observer measures a different time so that the ratio stays the same, then the speed of light remains the same. So in order for the speed of light to remain constant for both observers, this is the great genius that Einstein concluded, the time measured by the person on the train, it has to be less than the time measured by the person on the ground. There's more time on the for the person on the ground in order to cover more space and reach the same speed of light. It would have taken longer for the light beam to travel from the laser and return to its starting point after reflecting off the mirror for the person on the ground. How can two different observers measure different durations for the same event? The only way this can occur, and here's the big punchline, is if time flows at different rates for each observer. That's the mind-blowing conclusion. The clock of the person on the train moves slower when compared to the clock of the person on the ground. Mind-blowing. The zigzag stretches out further as the train moves faster. And the total distance traveled by the light beam by a stationary observer on the ground increases. So this means that the clock on the train relative to the guy that's standing on the ground moves even slower than a clock on the ground. And as the train approaches the speed of light, if it could ever reach the speed of light, the clock slows down. It has to slow down because it's, it's, it's covering less space. And we still have to keep the speed of light to be constant. Time would come to a complete halt on the train if it could reach the speed of light. If the train could travel at the speed of light, the passengers would essentially be immortal. If the train were traveling at the speed of light, an infinite amount of time could elapse for someone standing on the ground while absolutely no time elapsed for the person on the train. Now, when you think into this, you can conclude that a person on a train that is traveling at the speed of light really is experiencing timelessness. Essentially, all points in time become merged into a single point in time. The person on the train is not moving through time by a single millisecond, whereas the world outside the train keeps on beating at the same pace. When Einstein's theory was first published, nobody believed that this could be true. This is ridiculous. Are you this doesn't this blows the mind? But after careful experimentation again and again and again, the data conclusively demonstrated that Einstein's theory was entirely correct.
The clock slows down as someone moves faster. The person in motion that is moving so fast, he actually is not aware of the slowing down of time because what happens is that when he's moving so fast, in his head, the clock slows down. Nothing has changed for the person riding in the train. He thinks everything is normal. To him, it appears like business is as usual. The moving person's clock only appears to be moving slower when observed by someone who is not moving with the clock. That is, time is not an absolute quantity. Time is completely relative depending on what perspective you have at the speed that you are moving relative to somebody who is standing on the ground and not moving at the same speed. So relative to each other, clocks are moving. Time is traveling at different speeds. Now, let me be, be, you know, be careful to note that this time difference is negligible at the speeds that we normally travel in a car or a plane. You know, when, when, when you are moving at 60 miles an hour relative to somebody who is just sitting at the side of the road, your time is barely, barely moving any slower than the guy that is sitting or at the, at the side of the road. If you're in an airplane that is moving at 500 miles an hour, it's a teeny, teeny little bit slower, but um, it, it's so, so, so minute that it's barely noticeable. And for the most part, it's imperceptible in most situations. But let me tell you where it does make a big difference. And these minute time differences become very, very significant with GPS satellites. Because what happens is that the clocks on GPS satellites, they run at different rates than the clocks here on the Earth. The GPS in your phone is based on this time difference that exists between the satellites traveling at incredible speeds up in the atmosphere in comparison to the people who are moving way slower down here on the Earth. This time difference is not so big because the GPS satellite clock slows down by seven microseconds per day due to this rule of special relativity. And this is due to the satellites moving at such incredible speeds of 14,000 kilometers per hour. But if this minor time difference is not taken into account and it starts accumulating one day after the other, it would result in significant miscalculations of our uh, iPhones and our positions and the time difference between the satellites that are up there in the atmosphere and us that are down here on this Earth. There's actually another influence in the difference between the times of the GPS satellites and us down here on the Earth Earth, and that's due to general relativity, um, which Einstein developed after special relativity, and that has to do with gravity also affecting the rate at which clocks move. Gravity, um, uh, as the result of mass, causes clocks to move slower than um, uh, objects that are further away from gravitational 
um, pulls or pushes or however you understand um, what gravity is. But the combination of both means that the GPS satellites, um, uh, because they are further away from the Earth and moving at such great distances, so it needs to be adjusted to the iPhones or to the machines that we have down here on Earth um, because it's very true that things that are moving faster, time is experienced slower in uh, relation to the people who are um, uh, down on this earth. And these differences are more pronounced at speeds that are a significant fraction of the speed of light. A clock in a spaceship that is traveling at 50% the speed of light, right? Let's take that as an example. It would run at 86.6% the rate of a clock that is down here on this earth. That means that the clock running um, a spaceship that is traveling at 50%, the speed of light runs in actuality 13.4% slower in relation to the clock down here on this earth. It's an amazing kind of a, of an understanding of the way the universe operates. This means that if the spaceship was traveling at this speed for 86.6 years before returning to earth, down here in this earth, a hundred years would have passed in actuality. So the space traveler, when he comes here to this earth, he's going to think that all of a sudden he traveled 14 years into the future. These are crazy, crazy ideas, but this is the way it works. So this may appear to be impossible, but time relativity based on the absolute speed of light has been proven to many, many, many de decimal points in countless experiments. And if someone could travel at the speed of light, their clock would move at an infinitely slow rate. In other words, their clock would be completely stopped while clocks on Earth continue to tick. And this space traveler could travel theoretically if he was traveling at the speed of light indefinitely into the future and feel as if no time has passed for himself. If someone could travel at the speed of light, they would be able to experience, in other words, all points in time at the same time because he would be traveling at infinite, at, 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 a, at, a, at a point of, 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 of where um, there, there would be infinite speed. It would be timeless. It would, it would be so, it would come to a stop, to a standstill time for this individual. So how does this all relate to God? You know, we say in our prayer, Hashem Melech, Hashem Melech, Hashem Yimlech, God is king, God was king, God will be king forever and ever. We talk about God, God who surpasses the limitations of time. We say, Hakol Tzafui, everything is foreseen. God knows now what's going to be in the future. Then, of course, everybody has the question, if God knows now what's going to be in the future, how do I have free choice? But the answer is pretty simple, because for you, just like the guy standing on the ground, the clock is ticking like a regular clock ticks. You have now, and then you have the past, and then you have the future, which you haven't experienced yet. But for light, which is traveling at, an, at, at, the, at, at the speed of light, and where time comes to a standstill, the future exists in the present, and so 
what you are going to decide later on for the time warp of the timelessness in light, it still hasn't come to it for you. Anyways, what we get from all of this is that since God exists outside of time, and time, like space, matter, and energy, is a created thing, God, like light, experiences all points in time, past, present, and future at the same time. God sees the end from the, st- from the start. When we talk about in the books that God is or the light that is infinite, this, this description of one of only one very small little uh, ray, so to say, one small little expression and taste of God, as the scientists understand the principle of light these days, helps us appreciate how there is no past, present, or future for God himself. He can live in the past, and he can know the future, and through your your connection with God, you can have an impact on the past, and you can make a difference on the future the way you behave today when you are connected to the infinite timelessness of God. This peculiar property of light corresponds so so uh, accurately to the characteristics of an infinite God. God, like light, exists outside of time. I hope you are still going along with me. You may have to review and go back a little and try to wrap your head around it. The first time I read these concepts, they were very, very, very hard and difficult to relate and feel connected to these ideas. But eventually, working on it and repeating and listening and imagining, I finally was able to come to terms with these concepts as all scientists and physicists and cosmologists um, are able to understand and appreciate. And the same thing is also with all these smart and geniuses listening to physics of the mystics. You just got heard, you just heard today one aspect um, of this physical universe, specifically the timelessness of light, helping us appreciate one of the characteristics of godliness. Please send me your emails to physicsofthemystics at gmail.com and I'm going to enter you into this incredible raffle where you could win a $260 gift card from Amazon. I so appreciate the feedback that I receive from literally all over the world. And please share with your friends the incredible podcast, Physics of the Mystics. It was a pleasure, today's uh, podcast. And uh, see you next time.